Let's uh, open our Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 7. We're going to look at uh, verses 20 through 27, Lord willing. That's the sound of God's man working on the chain gang. Make a chain. That is a directive from God. And with that directive God, uh, from God, Ezekiel would pursue the forging of a chain by which he would shackle himself. He would act out before God's people what awaited the residents of Jerusalem. The survivors of the third Babylonian siege would be chained by their captors and driven about 700 miles to Babylon where they would live as a subjected people. It was hard for the average Hebrew to believe Jerusalem would fall. After all, it was the site of the temple. God dwelt among His people there in the Holy of Holies. Certainly, they thought, God would protect and preserve His dwelling. Well, no, He wouldn't. And in these verses, we get insight as to why he wouldn't and didn't. And so in verse 20, as for the beauty of his ornaments, he set it in majesty, but they made from it the images of their abominations, their detestable things. Therefore, I have made it like refuse to them. The temple is described as having beautiful ornaments and as a place God set in majesty. The book of Exodus filled with chapter after chapter on the materials for and then the building of the tabernacle which predated the temple. One author noted, and I quote, God created the whole world in six days, but he used 40 days to instruct Moses about the tabernacle. Little over one chapter was needed to describe the structure of the world, but six chapters were used to describe the tabernacle. And then listen to this description of the beautiful ornamentation of that place. The tabernacle was a facility which displayed fabulous wealth and beauty. It does not take more than a casual reading of the text to learn that the tabernacle was very costly. A study of Hebrew weights reckons a talent at about 64 pounds and the sanctuary shekel a third of an ounce. According to this calculation, there would be some 1,900 pounds of gold 6,437 pounds of silver, and 4,522 pounds of bronze. According to one calculation, I went, the Internet, what's with the Internet? I, I did a little search. I put pound and gold, and it took me to a page that, where you put in however many pounds you want, and it calculates how much it's worth in gold. Who has time to think of that stuff? Uh, do you, all of you are, you, are you on the gold standard now? Have you guys cashed everything in for your gold and, and you need those pages? But anyway, I did it. According to one calculation, 1,900 pounds of gold is $30 million worth of gold in the tabernacle in the wilderness. Now, the Jews made, it says here, they made from it the images of their abominations. They used materials from the temple to form idols in which to worship. They looted their own temple. God's dwelling place to provide for their idolatry. Looters are pretty low on the social scale in our minds. And I hope none of you have ever been a looter. If you have, we can talk afterwards. God forgives you if you've repented. But looters, I mean, they're, they're pretty low on the social scale. 
It's bad enough someone's home or business is in the way of some catastrophe, some fire is coming through or whatever. Some people, they stay to protect their property, not so much from the disaster, but from the looters. To steal from unprotected property, that's the worst. The Jews expected God to protect the temple and Jerusalem and them from Babylon and other foreign powers. They were the ones who had been looting their own temple. They didn't want God to interfere with their looting only if someone else was going to come in. Sin always seems worse when it's being committed by someone else. Uh, David, you know, gets busted there by Nathan. And uh, Nathan comes and tells him a story after, after it's been, I think, about a year since he committed his sin with Bathsheba and caused her husband Uriah the Hittite to be killed in battle. Nathan comes in and tells him a story, and David is just up to that guy that took that little ewe lamb. He should be killed. And Nathan said, David, it's you. You're the man. You're the man. You'd think a guy like David, a man after God's own heart, would know when he was being set up like that. You have to always be careful of the setup with Christians, you know. Just, you know, as soon as you answer a question and somebody's hand starts going up, you know, oh, man, I'm the man, you know. It's me. And so, but the trouble is, sin always looks so much worse on someone else. And, and uh, we really should let judgment begin in the house of God uh, and make sure that our own house is in order. It says here that God would make the temple like refuse to them. In other words, he would remove the beautiful ornamentation and take away the materials they were abusing for their idolatries. Once the temple was like a garbage heap, there would be no raw material from which to forge idols. Uh, and so they were used to, you know, and somehow getting material from the temple in order to build these idols. God says, well, I'm going to have to put a stop to that. The only way I know to put a stop to that is have the Babylonians take out everything that's valuable. All that's going to be left there is a rubbish heap. And so you won't be able to build too many idols out of hefty bags. You know, they they're just not, it's just not going to work. Uh, we used to visit the dump uh, up in Running Springs. When we lived in the San Bernardino Mountains, you had to take your own garbage to the dump, and it, bears would always hang out there. And so it was kind of, it was kind of a family outing to the dump, you know. But uh, So I'm just saying that I don't want you to think that going to the dump is anything pleasant. You know? So when God says he's going to turn it into a garbage heap, you think, well, well, there's a lot of salvage at the garbage you know, here. It wasn't like that. So he was going to have to ruin it so that they couldn't uh, continue in their idolatry. Verse 21, I will give it as plunder into the hands of strangers and to the wicked of the earth as spoil, and they shall defile it. How could God let non-believing Gentile pagan idolaters defile his holy temple? Well, the Jews had already defiled it. It was defiled. Having strangers plunder it would show them how they had been treating it from God's point of view. They'd be, they would look and be appalled. Oh, there's plunderers going into the temple. They're, they're stealing things from it. They're, look at what they're doing. And God said, yes, this is it. This is, this is my perspective of what my people are doing. That's where I met with you. That's where I dwelt with you. And you would come in and take from it to build your idols. Verse 22, I will turn my face from them. And they will defile my secret place, for robbers shall enter and defile it. God would not protect the temple. He would not stop its destruction. 
he would look the other way while it was robbed and defiled. He desired to dwell among his people. But since they did not desire his presence, God had no need for a dwelling place among them. I mean, you know, God didn't need a vacation home on earth if nobody was going to visit him there, if there was no real desire for them to be there. They were going through the rituals, the outward rituals, uh, but that's, that was never the intent. Uh, and, and they just thought, well, we have the temple. God lives in the temple. You know, we're safe. He's going to protect the temple and with it the precinct around Jerusalem and the city of Jerusalem. And though things might get really rough for a while, uh, ultimately we'll be okay. And that just wasn't the case. God said, well, if you don't want to meet with me there, if you want to go up into high places, into the mountains and the valleys and the wilderness and worship idols, then I'll, I'll let you do that. I don't, I don't need this uh, place. I, I desire to have fellowship with you, but I don't need this place to do it. One thing I loved about the 18 years we met at the Kings County YMCA, you had to really love our fellowship to put up with it. It, it was kind of a special thing, you know. No, I don't want to go back there. But it was kind of a special thing because, uh, you know, it was really, we didn't do it on purpose. I mean, it's, all, it's, how, it's what God provided, but it, it, you had to really want to come to church. I mean, you had to wake up on Sunday morning and think, do I really want to go to church? It's five o'clock. And I'm on the setup crew. I'm on the sound crew. I, uh, you know, I'm going to be teaching Sunday school in a in a locker room. Is that what I really want to do today? And 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 the answer was yes. This is what I'm excited. I can't wait to get there, and and to do that for God's glory, to watch out for the trustees with their orange vests, and and to wonder who's on the roof during the Bible study fixing the air, swamp coolers, and you know what what's going on, you know. And so I I want I. I you could look out and, and look at each other and think, you want to be here. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? And, and, uh, and people who didn't want to be there, you could tell. They would come and they'd never come back. And, and, and some of them would say, hey, when you get a building, I'll come. But in the meantime, I, I don't want to go to church that bad. You know? and, and, and so I mean, I, there is a sense of, 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 of you know, not, certainly not longing for Egypt or anything like that. But uh, it, it was an interesting time. There's nothing turnkey about the YMCA that you could take for granted. Uh, I, my favorite story about the YMCA was the first Easter Sunday that we had there, the first year when Easter Sunday came around, and we showed up and it was locked. And nobody was there. And Luckily, I had the home telephone number for the director, Eric Nelson, wonderful guy, you know, but I said, Eric, you know, we're here at the Y. And he said, yeah. And, and he goes, what are you doing there? And I go, well, we're, we're going to have church. And he goes, oh, I, he goes, I figured it was Easter. It's a holiday. I go, I go, Eric, it's a religious holiday. It's, uh, it's like the big one, you know. It's, it's the one day you want to be here, you know. We really, I just didn't see this one coming, you know. And, and uh, so uh, he came down, he opened the Y, and we had, uh, we had Easter. And so nothing, you didn't take anything for granted at the Y. You were just, you never knew what was going to happen, but you knew that the people who came there, they, they wanted to go to church. They, they were excited about that. And, and uh, uh, you know, and God, he had come to a place with his people, the Israelites, they didn't, want to, they didn't want to meet with him. They didn't want to know him. They didn't want to see him. They were, they were out in the wilderness, out in the valleys, out in the mountains. They were doing all the things, all the worship. Things. And really, it wasn't, you know, they, they weren't really, 
because they were enamored of the gold imagery. And it was all the other behaviors and practices that went with the idolatry. It was the sexual immorality and the illicit stuff and all that weird stuff. That was, it was a superstition. Man, did I read a terrible article this morning uh, to the guys at our men's thing. We always go over some news items. A lot of them are lighthearted, but some of them are serious. There's a uh, resurgence in Uganda of child sacrifice. Because the famine and the government, everything is so bad in Uganda, even among people who have you know, said that they've converted to Christ, or they, they are reverting to superstition, witchcraft and shamanism, is up, and, and they're finding all kinds of evidence of, of child sacrifices that people try and, and figure out what's going on. And, and just, it's just terrible stuff. And so uh, this, this was the children of Israel. You know, God had given them the tabernacle. Uh, to meet with them, and, and they didn't want to meet there. And so verse 23, Make a chain, for the land is filled with crimes of blood, the city is full of violence. You wear a lot of different hats when you're God's servant. Ezekiel was told to make a chain. We're not told how involved he was, whether he manufactured it or not, but I know he didn't just go down to orchard uh, and have them cut it off a roll. Uh, I'd like to think he was a hands-on guy who went down to the metal shop and either made the chain himself or supervised the work. And what we're talking about by the chain, of course, is shackles, uh, leggings and hand shackles uh, that he would wear. The land was Judah, the city was Jerusalem. Ezekiel was already in Babylon, having been deported as a captive in an earlier siege. He was depicting the fact that the Jews remaining in the land, they would be chained and driven to Babylon. The use of Babylon to chain them was justified because of the crimes of blood and violence in the nation. Israel had a strong law. They had God's law, but was not applying it. Society was spiraling downward. Oh, how we need revival in America. Crimes of blood and violence, they really characterize our cities. I, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but sometimes if I'm watching something on television or, or a, a movie or something like that, and I see, especially these romantic shows, you know, where the couple is, it's midnight and they're walking down by the sea or the wharf or something. I always look at Pam and I say, do people really walk around in the middle of the night in cities like that? And, and in 90% of the movies, they get mugged, uh, you know. And so I guess the answer is no, you know. It's just, uh, uh, you can still walk around Kings County at night because everybody's armed, uh, you know. <laughs> or you're really not sure who's armed and who is. You're taking your life in your hands, you know. Uh, so, but, uh, you know, these big cities, you know, they're just, it's crazy. Uh, and, and so violence and, and, and crimes of blood. Uh, the making of the chain is significant. It was something Ezekiel did to himself. Sure, it was Babylon that literally chained them for the long march to the Euphrates River, but the chains were really of their own making. We speak today of being enslaved to certain habits or, or of being chained in that way. The chains are usually of our own making as we indulge ourselves thinking we have the power to say no and that we can stop doing whatever it is at any time. But uh, we learn quickly that the flesh should never be indulged, not for a moment, because it so radically takes over and uh, dominates us and enslaves us again. If you're struggling with something, uh, repent of it and get free of it and don't do it anymore. Therefore, verse 24, I will bring the worst of the Gentiles and they will possess their houses. I will cause the pomp of the strong to cease and their holy places shall be defiled. Now listen to this assessment of 6th century Babylon from a secular source. 
Here's, here it goes. It says, under Nabopolassar, his guy he had to do something because his name was so weird, uh, Babylon threw off the Assyrian rule in 626 B.C. and became the capital of the Neo-Babylonian Chaldean Empire. With the recovery of Babylonian independence, a new era of architectural activity ensued, and Nebuchadnezzar's son, Nebuchadnezzar II, made Babylon into one of the wonders of the ancient world. Nebuchadnezzar II ordered the complete reconstruction of the imperial grounds, including rebuilding of the Etimoniki Ziggurat, uh, which is a great tower, and the construction of the Ishtar Gate, the most spectacular of eight gates that ring the perimeter of the city. Nebuchadnezzar is also credited with the construction of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And so that's a contemporary assessment of ancient Babylon. God's assessment of the Babylonians wasn't very positive. He said, this is the worst of the Gentiles. The greatest empire, uh, that's the worst of the Gentiles. I'm going to bring it against my people. Think of any great city today and God's assessment would pretty much be the same. What men value and marvel is insignificant from God's perspective. So should it be of little significance to us. We can enjoy things without becoming enamored of them. It's all going to burn one day. Now, the worst of the Gentiles was better than allowing God's backslidden people to continue. And so, verse 25, destruction comes, they will seek peace, there shall be none. The seeking of peace might be a reference to political activity to try to foil Babylon, such as alliances with other nations like Egypt. This, there was always a lot of political intrigue going on uh, as you know, they were trying to get free from captivity. The point we might make here is that a backslidden people cannot hope in politics. Hope is in returning to God to a righteousness that exalts a nation. Verse 26 Disaster will come upon disaster, and rumor will be upon rumor. Then they will seek a vision from a prophet, but the law will perish from the priest and counsel from the elders. Disaster upon disaster. I love that line in the film Apollo 13 when something minor goes wrong right at the beginning, and Tom Hanks looks at the other two guys in the capsule and he says, Well, we just had our glitch for this mission, and then a few minutes later the whole thing explodes and they get into that big adventure. Uh, Little did they know that something more, something far worse was about to occur. We like to think disasters aren't going to pile up, but they often do. It's really superstitious to think otherwise. I've been to a lot of just kind of strange things, disastrous things, you know, uh, and and people, one of the ways people try to comfort each other is they they tell each other that, well, it can't get any worse. And I always step back because I think, man, the, the roof's going to cave in now. You know, I mean, not that I'm superstitious, but of course it could get worse. Of course it can get, and oftentimes it does get worse. It gets far worse. It's destruction upon destruction and disaster upon disaster. We need to remember that all things really are working together for the good for those who love the Lord, even when God seems to be piling on. Be honest, sometimes in your life you think God is piling on. And, and you don't understand uh, what's really happening, but that's when we walk by faith and not by sight. It talks about rumor upon rumor. What we think might happen can be worse than what is actually occurring. Case in point, Y2K. Remember that? People were led to all sorts of extremes based on what I think now we would consider rumor. Your PC isn't going to work. Well, it doesn't work anyway. <laughs> 
What? I didn't under. I never understood. I never understood the worry. My PC never works. You know. Now, if they told me my Mac wasn't going to work, then I then I wouldn't believe it. You know, that would be a crisis. But you know, half the time your computers don't work anyway. But uh, then now now we've got 2012 shaping up that way. It's merely the topic of movies and educational television now, and uh, endless shows about Nostradamus. Uh, too bad the guy doesn't have PR. I mean, he. Or I wonder if he has family. His family should just, you know, they can make a lot of money on that. But anyway, as December 21st, 2012 draws near, I'm not going to be surprised as we witness all manner of whacked out behaviors based on essentially rumor. Uh, now, I don't, I'm hoping we won't be here. I really do believe in the imminent rapture of the church. 2012, man, if I'm still here by 2012... I'll still believe in the imminent rapture of the church, but I'm hoping to be gone. But uh, nothing's going to happen on December 21st, 2012. Or if it does, who cares? See, I like the guys, I like Daniel's three friends. You can't kill us, but if you do, so what? I mean, that's, you call, is that optimism or pessimism? Is the glass half empty or half full with those guys? They're, they're just realists. So I'm here to tell you that nothing's going to happen on December 21st, 2012. And if it does, so what? What's going to happen? Oh, the poles are going to shift. The magnetic poles are going to shift. North is going to be south and south is going to be north. My GPS doesn't work half the time anyway. <laughs> Does your GPS talk to you in your car? I have one in the car and sometimes I forget to turn the volume down. We'll just be driving down the road and all of a sudden, ding, ding, lost satellite reception, lost satellite reception. It scares us to death. I want to drive in, you know, into the car next to me. I think we're being warned by somebody, you know. It's an alien landing or something, and it's just, I gotta turn that thing off. And so half the time that stuff doesn't work. So, you know, maybe something will happen, maybe it won't, but we don't care. Then they will seek a vision from a prophet, but the law will perish from the priest and counsel from the elders. Let's go on and read this with verse 27. The king will mourn, the prince will be clothed with desolation, the hands of the common people will tremble. I will do to them according to their way, and according to what they deserve, I will judge them. Then, they shall know that I am the Lord. Every avenue and resource for advice and direction and wisdom and counsel will become useless. Prophet, priest, and elder will have no insight to share. There will be no spiritual help forthcoming. King and prince will have no insight to share. That is, there will be no political help forthcoming. The common people will suffer because their leaders, spiritual and secular, will have let them down. If you're called to lead, then know how important it is. It's a very important spiritual activity. Give it everything you've got. doesn't matter how many or how few are yours to care for. Pour yourself out doing it. If you're a husband, you're called to lead at least your wife. And parents, you're called to lead your kids. Does it seem odd that they will seek a vision from a prophet, but none will be given? It shouldn't seem odd. God had been sending them prophets for centuries. They had ignored them. They delayed. They procrastinated. They took things for granted. There was always, always seemed to be a prophet. And so you start to think there'll always be a prophet. Anytime I need a prophet, I can go down and, and listen to the prophet. There's always some crazy guy like Jeremiah or Ezekiel. And so I just, you know, when I need that, it'll be there. And God says, no, there, there might be a time when, when that's not going to be there. The Word of God is so prevalent in our society it actually makes it easier to take it for granted. Too many believers have told me over the years how they slipped away from the Word and usually from church to their own detriment. 
I've heard that story so many times. Everything was going fine. The Lord was working in our life and then we just kind of slipped, you know, drifted away. No big sin, no return to addiction, just, you know, just, ah, you know, we got busy and I was here and she was there and all that. And, and it, it's always detrimental. We each need to adopt our own disciplined approach to hearing and studying the word. For me, it's always been to hold Sunday mornings in high regard and then to try to get to one other meeting of the church during the week. Of course, it goes without saying that you also want to be reading and studying on your own, on a daily basis, having your own devotions. The Jews ought to have been seeking a vision from a prophet while it was being given to them. It would have kept them from idolatry and, of course, this ultimate discipline of God. The truth is, if I begin to slip away from my devotions or from my disciplines in the Word, I'm already moving towards idolatry. Whatever it is that is taking my time and attention away from the Word is becoming my idol. Where's God's temple today? Well, He dwells within each of us personally and within all of us corporately. Both of those are necessary. I am the temple of God. We are the temple of God. And so let's meet with God and with one another as much as we can in these last days while we await the imminent return of of the Lord. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, the scripture says, especially as you see the day approaching. And man, it's coming fast. And so hang in there. Uh, take advantage of everything that the Lord provides for us. Uh, stand strong and steadfast in these last days.